Well, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, Isaac, thanks for that gracious introduction. It's funny because as an Air National Guard officer in Texas, uh, but as an academic, I'm the least military person in the military. And, but by extension in academia, they often think, oh, he's, he's, he's the most militaristic guy in the room, simply by the nature of the way academia works. Um, we're going to talk about Christian just war thinking. And the good news is, is that 99% of Christians for the past 2,000 years are just war thinkers. All of the major denominations, 99% uh, of Christians around the world are denominations. So if you're Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, anything that descends from them in the entire Reformed tradition and North American Baptists of almost every kind, uh, we're unified, we've been unified as being in the just war tradition for the entire last 2,000 years. And that's rooted in the New and Old Testaments, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, there's just a tiny, small group, although they've had a disproportionate influence since Vietnam, of Anabaptists, but that have historically been outside of the mainstream of Christendom when it comes to thinking about the issues of war, security, and peace. So with that, um, we're going to start with Monty Python. How many of you have seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Raise your hand. Excellent. Uh, and, and it's probably more excellent the few of you haven't seen it. <laughs> since Monty Python, frankly, is blasphemous in some of his other movies. But uh, here's the question. The question is, when you watch this two and a half minutes, this famous scene of King Arthur, who's searching for the Holy Grail, and he encounters the Black Knight, what is Arthur's responsibility as a Christian? What is his responsibility as a Christian? And by the way, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, Arthur has just ridden up on his horse, and he has seen the Black Knight standing in front of a bridge and then attack uh, or, or be in mortal combat with a Green Knight who apparently is trying to get over the bridge and the Black Knight kills the Green Knight. That's what's just happened and now Arthur is going to engage the Black Knight. How do we start this? We had a, we had a, we had a, we had a neat tech guy here. Let's see. There we go. I thought we had this checked. There we go. How do we increase the volume, do you see? Oh, no, that's not that. Okay, let's go like this. Yeah, that's what I was just doing. Hmm. Nope. Okay, let me get Lyle. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> we might get blasted. No, I don't okay, know. get ready. Okay, he just said, you fight with the strength of many men, Sir Knight. I am Arthur, King of the Britons. I seek the finest and the bravest knights in the land, joining my Camelot. Where's the speaker?
see here. All right. It's in good fun, and for those of you whose ears were offended, sorry. So, what was Arthur's Christian duty? I really am asking you. Okay, and that's a just war principle, the idea of battlefield proportionality, that uh, Arthur was only going, he, he, didn't, he didn't chop this guy's head off right from the beginning, right? So that's, a, that's an excellent point. Um, but it's taking one step back. What, what authorized Arthur as a Christian? I mean, he's ostensibly on a holy quest to find the Holy Grail and to bring peace and security to his kingdom. What, you know, didn't he have other options? Couldn't he have tried nonviolent direct action? Couldn't he have turned the other cheek? Wasn't this sin? I can wait you out. <laughs> no, no, that's exactly right. It's hard to see if, because we cut the first two minutes off of this clip. There's a bridge there. The Black Knight is standing on one side of the bridge. The Black Knight's tent and armaments are across the bridge. That's why the Black Knight says, none shall pass, is because no one can cross the bridge. Right, there are other ways around. So, so there may have been other ways around. So is, is that the Christian thing for Arthur to do, is to go around the Black Knight? He tried to negotiate. There's a just war principle about last resort, and it means have reasonable efforts been made. He's under the crown. And, uh, he is the crown. Yeah, he's, he's the crown. It's like a sheepdog is under uh -huh. the authority of the shepherd and yeah. wolves are yeah. not. So yeah. sorry for the wolves. Yeah. You know, the, the, the critical principle here is just where thinking begins with the principle of legitimate authority. And we get that from Romans 13, but we also get it throughout the pattern of the Bible that there are people who are appointed to be in positions of authority and that they wield the sword. And Arthur was the king of the Britons, and he had a responsibility 
uh, uh, this, this gentleman noted, okay, here's a bridge, and Arthur maybe has the leisure as king to, he has the time, he can go around, but what about his subjects? Are, should they be stopped by what is ostensibly a criminal or a brigand, fleeced down for money where they have to pay a toll every time they cross this bridge? I mean, imagine, imagine it's one thing for Arthur to say, oh, I can go around because I get to write my own calendar. But what is Arthur's responsibility to his peasants who need to cross this bridge to get to the market? Does he have the responsibility to uh, protect his peasants mm -hmm. by uh, adjudicating with this criminal? Yeah, that's exactly right. Some, sometimes we have the sense that um, Anyone who wields the sword in some sense has dirty hands or something. But Arthur has a responsibility as the king to be protecting his people. It's, he, he's not living up to his responsibilities as a legitimate political authority if there's criminals running rampant in his country. In fact, he has a positive duty, he has a positive obligation, wouldn't you say, to stop an armed thug from operating freely in his country? And it's interesting because when you, as you watch this, um, the Black Knight really is reminiscent of an Al-Qaeda or an ISIS type in a sense. He gets his arm chopped off. Does he stop? No. He gets his other arm chopped off. Does he stop? He gets his leg chopped off. He gets his other leg chopped off and he says, come back here, I'm going to bite you. you know? I mean, those, those could have been the famous last words of Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. And of course, this is a ridiculous sketch in a lot of ways, but it does point out uh, a few principles of the classic just war tradition I'd like to highlight to you. So I'm gonna talk for 12 or 13 minutes and then the rest of the time we'll spend in Q&A and discussion. Uh, the, the classic Christian just war tradition has its roots in the Old Testament and the principles of order and political authority and then again in the New Testament and then throughout the classic just war tradition the last 2000 years. And so the question really is how have Christians for the last 2000 years thought about issues of war and peace? And the answer typically is really, they framed it around three questions. First, when is it moral to employ force? And second, how can force be employed justly? And then in more recent years, we've talked a lot about how do you end a war well? So that first question, when is it just to go to war? When is it moral to go to war? The classic answer is this, that a legitimate political authority acting on a just cause can employ force when the intention is right. And let's just unpack that quickly. We know the, the principles of authority, say from Romans 13, one to seven. We know that we're enjoined in the New Testament multiple times in Titus and in Timothy uh, to pray for leaders. And of course, many of the great people in the Bible were actually in leadership positions. Daniel, Joseph, Moses, Joshua. So there's the sense that legitimate authorities have a role to play for the common good in a fallen world. So they're the ones who, we, who have the legitimate uh, opportunity to use force, law enforcement, military, etc. So what's a just cause? Augustine said that a just cause was things like preventing wrongdoing, punishing wrongdoers, or righting a past wrong. So things like self-defense, intervening on behalf of an ally, intervening to stop a genocide, acting after you've been attacked in the first place, like the U.S. did after December 7th, 1941. Those are the types of things that would meet that criteria. 
And then the third of these classic criteria is right intention. And frankly, this is what separates Christians from lots of others is both in the Old Testament and the New Testament we're enjoined over and over or we're told God looks on the heart, not the outward appearance. Remember Jesus said, it's not the action, it's so often what's in your heart that the action is, comes from an inner motivation. And in just worth thinking, this is true. Augustine said, uh, greed, the lust for power, revenge, hatred, bitterness, those types of things, they're, they're, they're illegitimate reasons to use force. So what might be a legitimate or a right intention? Something like love. Augustine asked, well, how do you love your neighbor if you're in political life? You protect them. You intervene to protect them. A second Christian doctrine that we have that helps illuminate intention is vocation, that people have different callings. You have a calling to be serving in public life right now. People in law enforcement have a calling to protect their fellow citizens within domestic society. Soldiers have a calling to protect the good of the country. And so vocation may be the right intention. People are serving their country, they're protecting their fellow man. So those principles, authority, just cause, right intention, they're really what we call deontological. In other words, they're about duties or moral obligations. But over time, we've added some prudential or some stewardship criteria to them. Things like, and this gentleman mentioned one of them, uh, have we tried diplomacy and other factors? We call that last resort. The principle of proportionality of ends. Uh, is going to war proportionate to the threat or to the way we've been attacked in the first place? And, and then the, the principle of likelihood of success. Have we counted the cost? And you can think there's a lot of proverbs, aren't there? Where it says that the king, a wise king listens to his counselors, a wise king considers the cost before building a tower, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are Christian principles that are, that are widely distributed kind of in a natural law sense really around the world. Well, that second question is the question about, so if the decision's been made to employ force, then what? How can war be fought morally? And there's two principles there. The first one, uh, as one of you mentioned, is proportionality. Proportionality is on the battlefield, is the force we're employing proportionate to our battlefield objectives? So for instance, you're in the field with your platoon and a sniper is shooting at you. Sure, you can call it an airstrike. You just don't call it a nuclear bomb, right? That's a ridiculous example of being disproportionate. And the other principle is distinction or what we call discrimination. And discrimination is the idea that we can distinguish between combatants and non-combatants and we can distinguish between legitimate combatant targets like a military base versus an illegitimate target such as a school or a house of worship or a library or something that just has no relationship to the battlefield. In a nutshell, that's, that's just worth thinking. In the past 15 years, uh, a lot of us have been thinking more about how do we link those first two questions to use postbellum or justice or morality at war's end. That's always been a part of the Christian just war tradition because people like Augustine and Aquinas quoting Cicero would say, well, the end of war is a better state of peace but we've been fleshing that out over the past 15 years. And our framework typically is something like this. A war that ends well is one where you establish order, you take steps towards justice, and in some cases, and it usually takes a long time, there may be some steps towards conciliation. And by conciliation, I don't mean some sort of kumbaya, we're all gonna get along. I mean the hard work of saying, okay, the past is the past, 
but that we can imagine a, a different future with security guarantees and maybe some efforts at holding people accountable. And we can envision a, a conciliatory future where we don't have to be fighting enemies any longer. Well, my last note before taking some Q&A, and we can talk about anything you like, Syria or the American Revolution or whatever, um, but I would say this, is that Christians have a lot to be proud of in this tradition because it's been Christians who have fleshed out what became today's international law. It's Christians, for instance, like Augustine, who were able to make really smart distinctions to say, you know, we live in a fallen, terrible, sinful world, but it would be a lot worse without political order. That's what he says in the city of God. We'd be, the, the major thinker that provided us just worth thinking during the time of the Crusades was Aquinas. And Aquinas was reminding us that that there can be restraint and that warfare has to come under authority. And in the 1500s, it was Christians who were making the argument saying, and, and it's the basis for human rights today, by the way, people like Vittoria and Bartolome de las Casas who were saying, it may be just for the Spanish and the Incan or the Spanish and the Aztec empires to go to war, but that doesn't mean that the Spanish empire can practice ethnic cleansing or enslave everybody. In other words, the means of warfare or the outcomes may not be just, although the cause might be legitimate. In the past 50 years, it was Christians who, who really kind of breathed new life into the just war tradition to apply it to things like weapons of mass destruction, to nuclear deterrence, that was Paul Ramsey, to how to think about terrorism, the late Jean Bethke Elstein who passed away three years ago, and others. So this is something that Christians have taken a, a firm stand on for a long period of time and it's something that actually we should be proud of. I, I, you know, I go to a typical evangelical church where we never talk about these things, uh, and more's the pity. And I, I can tell you later maybe some resources to read and things if you'd like to hear them. But let me open it up to you for, for your questions or comments. And you'll help me if you just briefly uh, will identify yourself. Hey, I'm Joe Blow, and you know, I work, uh, I'm a colonel in the Army, da da da, here's my question. like the Q&A to be, you know, whatever you guys want to ask.